following is a recording of a sermon given at All Saints Lutheran Church in Ottawa, Canada. For additional messages and more information, visit allsaintslutheran.ca. Hello everyone, it's Pastor Alan Gilman of All Saints Lutheran Church with the message for August the 23rd, 2020. Last week, we met outside uh, for the first time since COVID began, and we had a really good time together. And uh, we're planning to do something similar for this weekend. Next weekend, for Sunday, August the 30th, we hope to have our first official indoor meeting since uh, we shut down back in March. And um, for now, I'm continuing these pre-recorded sermons. And beginning on the 30th, we're hoping to uh, provide you with the sermons live or a live stream, and they'll be um, you'll be able to watch it after, of course. But the format will be a little different. We're going to see how it goes. Please be praying for us as we um, as we uh, ramp up to uh, do these uh, services in this way again, and or a little different with uh, continuing COVID restrictions. And um, yeah, do let me know if anything. Remember, you could always email me at pastor at allsaintslutheran.ca. You'll be getting information by email about the upcoming services. So looking forward to seeing uh, many of you. All right, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. As you know, it's called the Remarkable Gospel. And um, I think I remind you of this, go over this every time. I don't know if you find it a bit redundant. The reason why I keep mentioning this is because it's so important to note that this is an evocative telling of the story of Jesus. Uh, people through the gospel are astounded. I've been astounded. I, I have found this gospel remarkable as I've um, really delved into it uh, before I ever started doing this as a sermon series. And since I've been doing it as a series, I keep getting struck by what's being said and how it's being said and the possibility of why it's being said. I'll be seeing some of that again this week. So um, I'm going to read the passage a little differently from what I normally do. So we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. This seems to be the third section of three in the Gospel of Mark. The the first section uh, was learning about Jesus and who he is and much of his teaching. And then we had the, the middle section that we just completed last time where Jesus really challenges all of us in how we look at life and how we look at ourselves. And now he will enter into Jerusalem and begin the preparation for and the actual happening of his unjust death and his resurrection. And so what I'm going to do is we're looking at chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. I'm going to be reading up to... Uh, verse 26 eventually. But to save time, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be reading chapter 11, verse 1 through verse 11 first, then comment on that, and then I'm going to read the rest of the of the section and then comment on the verses that I'm going to comment on. It'll make more sense as we go along, but let's pray first. Our Father, we thank you for your enduring word. We thank you that you are alive, and so your word is alive. That these are not just uh, scratches on a page, but this is living, the, your living word to us. And Lord, as I seek to uh, reflect upon some of the things that you've shown me, may you reach all of our hearts, continue to reach my heart, Lord, and may the words that I share impact many people who are watching this, both in our own fellowship and beyond. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we're starting by looking at chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Okay, so in, in this section, which has often been called the triumphal entry, it's actually one of my favorite sections of, of the New Testament, one of my favorite sections of the Gospels, as this really affirms and confirms Jesus' messianic role. I've encountered uh, in my years and being in various churches that there's a sense that people look at this passage as if the crowd was misguided. They're all excited that the Messiah had come to, to conquer the Romans. And on that, they, they, they did misread, they did misunderstand, even though that's what they anticipated. But they were right to be excited about the coming Messiah. And the taking of the, of the, the cult and and riding it into the city was a fulfillment of the prophet Zechariah. And Jesus set this whole scene up. There's this whole business of him telling the disciples how to get the animal on which he would ride. And it sounds like he had he had contacted people ahead of time to work out a sort of a password of what they should say so that they would, uh, in any in case anybody asked them, which they did, about their untying the colt, that they'd be able to take it to take it to the Lord. And so he set this thing up um, to demonstrate that he really was the long-awaited Messiah. And the crowd that was with him, at least most of that crowd, likely were the people that were joining him on the way as he was heading down from the north from Galilee, coming down the Jordan Valley uh, through Jericho, and now coming up to Jerusalem. And as all these people were gathering to celebrate the Feast of Passover, um, they uh, they were hearing his teaching. They had just seen his healing of blind Bartimaeus that we looked at last time. And one of the interesting things about that story and how it connects to this is um, Bartimaeus is the first one to refer to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark as the son of David. He understood him to be the long-awaited greater son of David, as promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, as spoken about in Psalm 110, that there would be this great uh, king who would come, son of David, um, who would rescue them from their sins and rescue them from their oppression, which they thought would be the overthrow of the Romans. Um, What happened instead was a greater overthrow, the overthrow of Satan's kingdom, the 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 breaking uh, not of Caesar's sword, Caesar's power in that moment, but the power that stood behind Caesar, the threat of death that that Caesar had and would use readily, which he used against Jesus, but 
Jesus broke the power of death that Caesar, the empire, tried to impose upon him, and through that set us free to be the people that God wants us to be. That's getting ahead of the story. But so the, the people didn't understand uh, how Jesus came to do what they were expecting him to do. And it's not that he didn't do what he they expected. It was actually more than what they expected. And so they were right to be excited. They were right to celebrate. They were shouting in Hebrew, Hoshiana ben David, Hosanna to the son of David. The long-awaited Messiah had come. And what we see here is an assertion of true Jewish identity, that God had called the Jewish people to be his channel of blessing to the world that would culminate but not end with the coming of the Messiah. And here they were, part of the celebration that Messiah had actually come. So now what I'd like to do is we're going to go on to the next section. I'm going to read past what we're going to be focusing on, uh, partly for the sake of time, um, and also because of certain things that I'm hoping to emphasize uh, next week. But uh, we're going to read from verse uh, 12 down to, what did I say? Verse uh, 26. But we're going to be focusing on 12 to 19. So Mark chapter 11, verse 12. On the following day, when they'd come from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, he said to it, the fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished, there it is again, astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So, there's these two mentions of the fig tree. We're going to be looking at the first one on the way into the city. And next time we're going to look at what happened to the fig tree and and what Jesus teaches as a result of what happened to the fig tree. We'll be looking at that next time. Uh, but let's go back to verse 11 when they entered Jerusalem. Um, and it says, And he entered Jerusalem, went to the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So, like a lot of the people traveling to Jerusalem, um, they would be staying outside the city. And so Jesus comes in through this incredible celebratory welcome. He enters this in through the city gates, and then he enters into the temple complex. And what we're told here is he, he, looks, he looks around and he goes home, 
which is sort of this anticlimactic thing. Like uh, we're, we're going to soon see him do one of the most, well, the only really what we call violent act that we ever see him do in the Gospels. Um, pretty much, we could say, out of character, very dramatic, very powerful. But just before that, he gets to the temple, looks around, and goes to where he's staying. What's what's that about? Now, there is the, the feel, as we get through the, in the Gospel of Mark, that this is Peter's Gospel that Mark has, has, Mark has written down. And we constantly get the feeling of, really being there uh, so it's it's so it's so vivid and it has all these extra details like this but why tell us he went looked around and went home well if you picture that what mark was recording and i mentioned this before that what we have is likely peter would tell this whole story uh, at one time take about an hour and a half to tell it and um, when he gets to this part, you know, when you tell a story orally, uh, very often you, you kind of move into the actions of the characters that you, are, that you are speaking about. And so here he says, and Jesus went to the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, and picture this crowd of people gathering around, this, uh, this fisherman from, from uh, the land of Israel, probably now somewhere in the Roman Empire, there's probably both Jewish and non-Jewish people around. Some of them are aware of, of the Bible, some are not. He's telling the story and he says, and he looks around at everything. Well, when, when the storyteller says, and he looks around, what's he looking at? You. He's looking at the people. And there's something probing about this. And I think, th- one of the reasons why I think this is because as we continue in the story, just like the other aspects of the Gospel of Mark, we see all these various characters, we see their reactions, we see where what they're having trouble with, where they're failing, and I have the impression that he's talking directly to me or to you. Whoever is hearing the story, you're the audience, not just to know a history. Oh, that's very interesting what happened over there. Yeah, that's, oh, Jesus did some amazing things and maybe I should do what you're telling me to do and believe in him and all this. But it's more than that. It's putting the spotlight on the hearers, in this case on the readers, to to see what our reactions are and how we fit into what God is seeking to do in our lives. And we'll see this more as we go along. Also, it says, and it was already late. Again, okay, so maybe he would have said something more, it was already late. Well, that could be a way of saying the time is late. Judgment is coming. As it was for the people in this story, it could be that for the hearers of the story and for us, it's later than we think. Verse 12, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Well, this is kind of a strange story, isn't it? The way um, he sees a fig tree in the distance, it's got leaves on it, and he wants to see if there's any fruit on it, but it's not the season for figs. And so even though it wasn't the season for figs, he, he curses the tree. 
and says, may no one ever eat fruit from you. Again, well, scholars just have a heyday with trying to figure out what's going on here. It's possible. It sounds very strange to us. But there was this like early, early fruit on fig trees that many people, it seems some actually preferred it over the regular ripened fruit of later on in the season. So this idea of it not being the season for figs could be a way of saying that these early type figs were or should have been present. I don't really think it matters. I don't think the actual, the, 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 um, is it, is it botany, the botany over this, the science over fig trees isn't really the point because there seems to be something symbolic here. There is a teaching that he wants to bring to us that we're going to be looking at next time when they come back and see that the fig tree had withered. And there's all these things that he says concerning the, in, res, in response to the disciples noticing the withered fig tree. So that's going to have to wait. But do notice the way it says at the end of verse 14, and after uh, Jesus says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, he says, and his disciples heard it. That's supposed to be a ding, ding, notice this. They noticed it. We need to notice it. And we'll take it up more when we get back to, to, to that next time. Let's continue on, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the t- and those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, "Is it not written, My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." Now, as I, as I just mentioned, it's a very unusual story. We, we don't normally see Jesus acting in this way. Um, but before, uh, before we get to that, what I would like to do is give you a little bit of a tour of the ancient temple in Jerusalem. So what we have here is a model, because the whole thing was destroyed completely by the Romans in 70 AD. Here is a model of what we call the second temple. Under Solomon, many hundreds of years before was the first temple that was destroyed by by the Babylonians. And then later on, when the people came back from exile in Babylon, they built the second temple. But it didn't look like this. It was not as fancy, not as big. So what we're seeing here is, again, it's a model of the version of the second temple that was made by King Herod, Herod the Great. It was this major project that he had where he beautified it and expanded it. It took about 80 years. Uh, it, it was finally completed not too long before the time of Jesus and then didn't last that long because it was destroyed in the year 70. But it was a magnificent uh, structure. So uh, what we have is I'll show you here and what's important in the story that we're going to be looking at. So this courtyard, this was called the Court of the Gentiles. And it actually wraps around so um, we're facing west, like we're in the east facing west, the south is to the left, north is to the right. And um, so if we were able to see from above, this courtyard would come close to what this would go all would wrap around like a U. And it was called the court of the Gentiles because the people, of the nations, the non-Jews were allowed to come to the temple area um, but only go this far. So the temple itself is actually the structure that's in the center. The the part that is higher than the rest, um, that is the 
Um, that's the holy place, and inside there is the holy of holies. So the sacrifices, the sacrifices would take place uh, within the open structure, um, and uh, then the the priests would do various things inside that that building. Uh, the court of the Gentiles was called that because that's where non-Jews were allowed to be, but most of the people that would be there would be Jewish people milling around, praying. Uh, being near the temple, but this would be the courtyard. But non-Jews were also allowed there. So that's, as I said, it's called, that's why it's called the court of the Gentiles. Just to give you a little bit more bearing here, um, on the on the left, where that arrow just came down, you can see some steps. Those are the southern steps of the temple. People would come from the south and enter in the temple from that direction. And just to show you, a year ago, Robin and I were there where this where the southern steps of the temple have been excavated. So those are the actual southern steps that you see in in, in the model before over there. And uh, what we have that's sort of like an arrow. It, you can't see the end of the arrow because it's on the other side of that western wall. You've probably heard of the western wall. It used to be called the Wailing Wall. And, oh, before, and before I show it to you, I, I wanted to point this out because, so you can understand why the Western Wall looks like it does today. And so I've highlighted uh, in green, uh, if you could, it, what you see there is the temple is on top of a, a, a platform of earth. Herod, Herod built up the, the temple plaza. And in order to do that, he created a retaining wall where it held up the earth upon which the, the temple structure was actually made. So now if we go all the way around to the other side today, so this is not the temple wall. So now we're on the other side that you couldn't see. This is the retaining wall on the western side of the temple structure. And so this is the closest that uh, place the Jewish people can get to uh, to uh, to where the ancient temple stood. And it's very possible that the Dome of the Rock on the, on the left there, the, the Golden Dome, uh, which is a, which is actually across from a mosque inside the, the, the temple, what's called the Temple Mount, that is likely exactly on top of where the Holy, Hol Holy of Holies was supposed to be. So looking again at the, the Temple Plaza, if you, you can see here, this is part of a, a model of the city of Jerusalem. It was very large uh, in that it took up um, about uh, 20 percent or 20 percent of all of Jerusalem. That's how big it was. Uh, Jerusalem had maybe maximum 100,000 people living in it at the time, but there would be many hundreds of thousands of people that would come for the three uh, special uh, feasts, including Passover, which happens during this time, uh, during the time of the of Jesus coming before his death, that we're looking at today. So back to the passage. Jesus comes in, and he'd seen this the night before. That what people when they came uh, to celebrate the feasts. Uh, they needed to offer these sacrifices, but people were coming from all over the place, or coming all over the land of Israel, and even from other parts of the Roman Empire. So they 
couldn't bring their sacrifices. There also might have been an issue too if the sacrifices that they were offering they had to be of the of the right kind and the right quality. And so what they would do is they would buy animals for sacrifice at Jerusalem. Now there seems to be signs that uh, these selling of animals happened in other parts of the city. And at some point somebody came up with the idea: Why don't we do this in the court of court of the Gentiles. There's lots of room here. It's very convenient. Um, but what was happening was there were so many people buying and selling that it was it was making it difficult for people, and particularly non-Jews, to come to the temple to worship. And Jesus, seeing this, uh, is enraged, and he drives out the buyers and the sellers uh, of these things. It's possible, too, that the money changers, because they had to they had to exchange their money, whatever currency they had, for the right kind of currency to buy the sacrifices. It's possible that the money changers and the sellers were charging exorbitant rates. It sounds like any other big occasion and festivals and 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 things like this. This is just what people do. Like you know, it's it's so sad that people will focus on the foibles and sins and wrongs of the Jewish people, as they're mentioned in, in the Bible, and forget. What I've tried to, to share on other occasions, the Jewish people are like a mirror chosen by God so that when you read the Bible, we see ourselves. We see ourselves. We don't see them. Of course, we see them. But we see them in order to see ourselves. And um, so they were just doing what people do in situations like this. It doesn't make it any any more right. Uh, it makes it, it's wrong. It's the wrong that we tend to do, you know, taking advantage of people, crowding other people out. And and it's interesting that Mark specifically mentions that, um, that when he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. In the other Gospels, there's mention of, of other sacrificial animals. But who were the people buying pigeons? They were the poorest people. The poorest of the poor were allowed, instead of sheep and goats, and, and sheep and goats, they were allowed to offer pigeons. And so there were people, likely ripping other, you know, Jewish people ripping other Jewish people off, um, to make um, a shekel or whatever the, the the money was at the time. Again, this is what we do: humans take advantage of other people, and it's wrong. And um, and and it's so it's not just uh, 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 it's not just about buying and selling in the temple of God. Oh, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't buy and sell in the temple. That that's not the point. You know, money came into the temple. I don't want to go down that 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 rabbit trail. But it's not about so much the buying and selling. Um, it's what was really happening there. What Jesus was encountering, and which you already knew, and so many of the people knew, is that the temple system had become so corrupt. That's why he talks about, uh, "You've made it a den of robbers." Um, it's not. It wasn't the a den of robbers is a place where robbers go after they've robbed, it's like their their hideout. So it's their place of refuge. And that's what he was calling the temple. It wasn't so much um, that they were robbing in the temple. It's that people taking advantage of other people, not just in terms of the, the buying and selling, but the whole temple system was ripping people off. And that's what he came to 
um, to confront. He act, by referring to um, my house should be called a house of prayer of all nations, and you have made it a den of robbers. These are shout outs, if I may say, to two passages in the in the uh, in the Hebrew Bible, Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah chapter 7. And uh, we don't have time to go into into those passages, but uh, in um, Isaiah 56, we see a people who had forgotten that they were to be a light to the nations. And that's what was going on. They were crowding out the Gentiles. This was supposed to be a place of worship for all peoples. God called Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. He called Israel to be a light to the nations. But that had been forgotten. And the reference to to robbers goes back to Jeremiah 7, where uh, Jeremiah is talking about the corruption of the temple in his day, in the time of the Babylonians, the first temple that I referred to earlier, and that the days of that temple were about to end because of the idolatry and immorality of the people at the time. They loved their temple. They took such pride in their temple. That was true in Jeremiah's day. That was true in Jesus' day. Look at our temple. We are the people of God. And hiding behind that and not dealing with their hearts and their lives. And God had had enough. The day of judgment was coming. That was true for Jeremiah. That was true in Jesus' day. And dare I say it's true for our day. For some people, it's already too late. But as long as you still have breath, you've got time. We need to deal with our corruption, even as believers. You think we're going to get away with some of the things that we do, our attitudes, our hatred for other people, how cold we are, wanting to do things our way in our time? Are our hearts open to the Lord and what He wants? Is it possible Or maybe I should put it this way. If Jesus came into our temple, our churches, our hearts, would he be impressed by what he saw? Or would he get violent? Oh, Jesus wouldn't get violent. Well, you know what? There's things in our lives that he wants to rip out. And it's it's high time that we dealt with it. I started thinking about this even even today as I was getting ready to, to record the sermon. Also, I felt like, ouch. I, you know, it's so easy to put up with our own junk. We want other people to 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 clean up their house. If only that they would clean up their house, clean up their act. But what about our act, our house, our fellowship, our areas of influence? Isn't it about time we let the Lord overturn the tables of our lives so that we could be individually and corporately the temple that we should all be? Verse 18, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Now, the language here is actually quite interesting. So the, the, the key antagonists in the Gospel of Mark is going to be the, the priestly class. We're not going to hear much about the Pharisees. Um, and I've tried to explain before that the Pharisees in many ways were much like uh, the thinking of Jesus and his disciples. They were wrong in certain areas, but their understanding of, of God and his word was more right than wrong. The chief priests, these are the people called the, the Sadducees, 
They reject most of, rejected most of what we call the Old Testament. They only held to the five books of Moses. They didn't believe in the prophets. They didn't think the prophets were inspired. They didn't believe in any kind of afterlife and angels and resurrection. But also, by this time, they'd become very, very corrupt. Under uh, the Maccabees, uh, about 160 years before, the temple had been um, was all had been desecrated by the the, the Greeks. Under the Maccabees, they restored it, but things went awry pretty quickly with with the priestly class. There were no more; they weren't descendants of Aaron anymore. The high priesthood would be bought and sold. It was pretty terrible, and so the temple had become corrupt. And so now Jesus comes in and he um, literally upsets their apple cart. But it wasn't this demonstration of, of of righteous anger that concerned them. It says, "For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching." See, if he would have done what he would have done, and the priests would look around at everybody watching, and they would see people going like this. If you're if you're just listening, I'm shaking my head. And they could see, oh, the crowd's not happy. So then they, the priests would have nothing to worry about in terms of their place and position. Because they, politically, they would still have the crowd on their side. Oh, so there's this upstart, you know, they come and they go. And, uh, you know, we'll get the, the people back selling in there tomorrow. And, and things will be as they always been. And, and even though he's, oh, we've heard he's done some miracles, it doesn't really matter. Like, he doesn't have a friendly audience here. But that's not what they observed. And it wasn't just that they were a friendly audience. It's that word astonished that comes up again. They were impressed. They were wowed by what they saw. And I wonder if this, the reaction of the crowd the priests saw were, was a case where people are seeing somebody do what in their hearts they always thought they should do. They knew what was going on was wrong, not just with the buying and selling of the of the sacrificial animals, but the whole corruption of the temple system. People know. They know something stinks, but most of the time, most people just put up with it because it's just too hard, it's too dangerous, too scary to, to try to confront the status quo. So you just go along with it, but you know it's wrong. And somehow, maybe what they perceived was that the crowd was seeing what Jesus did and they they saw someone who finally did what they always wanted to do themselves. And if that's the case, if you're the keeper of the status quo, that's dangerous. And that's something you better take care of sooner than later. Verse 19, and when evening came, they went out of the city and then what they're going to do, and they're going to see the, the withered fig tree. And we're going to come back to that next time. So as I've already mentioned, already asked, what needs to be driven out of our lives? Maybe it's time that we cleaned up house. Are we going to wait until we crumble with the corruption of our own lives? And look, just because we call ourselves Christians, godly, churchgoers, just because you were baptized as an infant or baptized as an adult. Just because you do some of the right things, these people did all, most of what they did. Most of what they did was the right things. And often it's the people who do the right things that don't 
see, or at least maybe see, but think we don't really have to deal with the other stuff. Because I'm a good guy most of the time. I'm godly part of the time. Is it good enough? Oh, but we're not, I thought we're not going to be judged by the things that we do. If our lives don't reflect the reality that's on the inside, then maybe the, 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 what inside needs to be cleansed before it's too late. And God will help us. That's the good news. This is the only problem is if we don't want to cooperate with what God wants to do in our lives. And as we get deeper into this gospel, the call to give our lives to him becomes greater and greater and light shining on who we really are will get brighter and brighter. And that's a good thing if we want God to fulfill what he wants to do in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've come to rescue us. Help us to want to be rescued. Lord, may we not be just keepers of the same old, same old, whether personally or corporately. May we welcome you into the temple of our lives. May we allow you to overturn those things that need to be overturned, to to clean those things that need to be cleansed, that we would be everything that you want us to be. Please, Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Until next time, this is Pastor Allen for All Saints Lutheran Church. God bless you and your families. Thank you for listening. For additional messages and more information, please visit us on the web at allsaintslutheran.ca.